<clears throat> so this afternoon we're studying just the one verse, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, and actually really only a half of the verse, to be honest. Luke chapter 6, verse 20, but we'll read the whole verse. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, please help us now as we study the scriptures. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And he, and it's speaking of Jesus, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And uh, where am I going to put the break in what we study today? Just after blessed. So, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed. And that's what we're studying today. So we're at the beginning of Luke's um, telling of the Sermon on the Mount or Luke's recording of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not word for word the same as it is in, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, or if I think the Gospel of Matthew, I should say simply. And um, it's not actually a bad way to study the Sermon on the Mount, to have it open both in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll find that um, you'll learn things by having it open in front of you in both Gospels. But... You don't have to go to the Gospel of Matthew to understand what is written in the Gospel of Luke, just as if you were studying the Gospel of Matthew, you wouldn't have to go to the Gospel of Luke to understand Matthew. We're just going to um, study today just as far as that word blessed, and um, we're going to look at the importance of Jesus pronouncing the blessings, the importance of Jesus defining this idea of being one who is blessed, blessed by God, one who lives in a state of blessedness. But the first point that I want us to look at here is just remembering from last week, Jesus has come down from the mountain after a time of prayer. He has set aside 12 disciples whom he called apostles. So now we have basically three groups of people who are within hearing range of this sermon. There are the apostles and the disciples. And remember that the apostles are simply set aside disciples. So there's the disciples and then there are the multitude, the great crowd. At verse 20, we're told that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, so there's a great crowd. Within this great crowd are disciples known to their teacher. They would have called him their master if they were sort of being typical. And Jesus addresses his disciples. He lifts up his eyes and he looks to his disciples. It's kind of pointed. I'm looking at you. Why? I want you to know I'm speaking to you. I want you to know that this is for you. So there's a great multitude, but he looks to his disciples and he teaches his disciples. The shepherd feeds his own sheep. Am I saying that he's not speaking to the great multitude? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in his teaching, his duty as the shepherd 
is to care for his sheep. His disciples are his sheep. Now in John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. So in that multitude that would also be hearing this teaching, there are those who are sheep as yet uncalled. You know, I have many other sheep to gather. He also said in the Gospel of John, there are sheep who are as as yet uncalled. But Jesus doesn't stand there and address the multitude. He doesn't stand there with a special message set up to speak to only the multitude. We would call it an evangelistic message. You know, the the kind of message that um, you would often see televised where the preacher basically speaks as though no one in the crowd is a believer and everyone in the crowd needs to hear this message of faith and repentance and turn to Jesus. Now, I'm sure that um, there were people in the crowd who were to hear the message that they needed to turn to Jesus, to repent of their sins and to seek forgiveness. But Jesus teaches his disciples and the world overhears his teaching. And from the world, from the multitude, his sheep are called simply by the sheep food that he's laying out. There are people who hear this teaching and it, by the grace of God and by the power of God's Holy Spirit, it connects and they want more. And there are people who hear it and um, goes over their head, goes through them, washes through them, however you want to put it. Somehow or other, the seed does not lodge in their hearts. Regeneration does not happen. A shepherd feeds the sheep. A shepherd proclaims the teaching that the sheep need to hear. I hope that many people hear what it is that I've got to say when I'm teaching. But in the end, my first duty is to feed the sheep that the Lord has put before me. You, know, you, you you haven't gathered here this afternoon to hear me not build you up in Christ. You haven't gathered here this afternoon to hear me fail to teach you from and according to the word of God. You don't want to hear my thoughts or my opinions on anything unless I'm bringing them to you direct from the scripture, accurately, carefully, in accordance with that which God has spoken through the scriptures. I'm here to feed the sheep. Jesus lifted his eyes on his disciples. He addressed his disciples in the presence of the multitude. So is he calling people to faith and repentance? Well, in a way, yes, he is. His sheep will hear his voice. They'll take the food and they'll come for more. They'll always want more. (laughs) Moving on, the very first word he says is blessed and that's the word that I want us to stop and to concentrate on at this moment. There are, there are three places in the scripture in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, where I want us to look at this concept of blessed, happy, favoured by God, blessed. And I want us to see that what Jesus is now doing is he is going to clarify in an ever-increasing way, exactly what it is to be in the place of God's blessing. So I had Caleb read it earlier, but let's turn there, first of all, to Psalm 1. 
the first man who's considered blessed is the man who does that which is right in the sight of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but delights in his law. But delights, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The first man who is blessed is the man who does that which is right in the sight of God. And he is distinct to the wicked. And the man who does that which is right in the sight of God is like the tree at verse 3, planted by the streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'm hoping at least, and I'm sure, to be honest, considering the people who are here today, you've heard enough teaching, not just from me, but in your Christian lives, to know that if I say to you, hold up your hand, whoever's righteous, you're not going to put up your hand. You're going to say, no, not me. You might say, if you wanted to talk carefully, Scott, and ask, am I counted righteous by faith? Well, yes, I'm in Christ and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But I don't consider myself to be personally righteous. That's correct. Because obviously and ultimately, the blessed man who is blessed on the basis of righteousness is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed the one who, who is like that tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. He indeed is the one who can appear in the very presence of God Speaking of his own righteousness, you and I have got nothing to boast about. We've got nothing to boast about. And if ever in our lives we've managed to do a good work in the sight of God, we've managed to do it because God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, prompted us to do it, empowered us to do it, and gave us the work to do. And so even if we have done a good work in the sight of God, God gets all the glory. But Jesus is the righteous man. He, he's, the, he's the model of righteous man. He's the, he's the righteous man. If, if I say to you, who do you want to be like? Well, as I said, I know everyone that's here today. You're going to say, Jesus. Who do you want to be like more and more? Jesus. You know, we want to be Christ-like because Christ is righteous in the sight of God. But none of us has it within, it, within us. And none of us has our own righteousness. What do we need? As sinners, Jesus is the righteous man. All of his works are pleasing in the sight of God. Everything he did was in perfect obedience to and fulfilment of God's commandments. What do we need to be <clears throat> blessed? Turn to Psalm 32. And Joel read to us from Romans chapter 4, where this is quoted. Psalm 32. A masculine of David. Verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So for you and I to be in this place of blessedness, 
Jesus is about to say, blessed, or he has said blessed, and there I've stopped. And I, I just want to basically prepare us for next time we're studying the Gospel of Luke to start to explain exactly what it means when he says, for example, something that is so countercultural and opposite to the um, attitude of today, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does he actually mean? Well, we've got to go back and see what blessedness is in the scripture. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's what we need, isn't it? We need to be the ones who are blessed by being forgiven. If God desires righteousness, and if only perfect righteousness can come into the very presence of God and remain in the presence of God, and we've got transgression, we need forgiveness. So this place of blessedness for sinners like you and I, it's, it's built upon this concept of being forgiven. Our sin is covered. Now, you've got to ask a question. What can be covered from the eyes of God? What covering might God possibly accept? Fig leaves don't work, remember. And you can take fig leaves as being representative of us trying to cover ourselves in any way, shape or form. And I hope I'm not the only person here when I, when I say, you know, there are some times when you're on your own and you make a mistake and you do something wrong, but you know there's nobody else around and you figure, well, nobody else is around and I can clean this up and there'll be no damage done and no one needs to know it was done. And that's a kind of covering. Well, on a human level, it can work. And that might not necessarily be wickedness. If you can actually genuinely repair your fault or mistake and you can actually genuinely leave it so that no harm is done. But that's a human covering. And you know and I know. God knows. And God is not necessarily going to accept our human covering of our faults and our sins. We need to be forgiven. We need our sin to be covered. Now, Adam and Eve got a covering. Remember, God, God killed an animal and he clothed them in skin. They got a covering for their nakedness because in their sin, the very first thing that they became aware of was we're naked. Now, you can take that physically. The scriptures, the scriptures tell us that in their creation, they were created naked and they weren't worried about it. They were comfortable. They were happy in their nudity, in the very presence of God himself. They were innocent. They were created with God's righteousness and the way that God created them was just fine. But the moment they sinned, the first complaint from Adam was, we knew that we were naked and so we hid ourselves from your sight. Their sin needs to be covered and only God can supply the covering. And for their physical comfort in a world that was now going to go wrong, they needed the covering of a skin. But that points us to something more. You know, almost everything in the book of Genesis points us to something more. And that points us to something more. And that is that God will provide the covering that God himself approves of. 
and the covering that God himself approves of is exactly the same kind of righteousness as the righteousness of the man that we read of in Psalm 1, that blessed, happy, eternally productive soul. We need that kind of righteousness. We need our sins to be covered. And we read in verse 2 of Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Not only are we forgiven, not only are we covered, but the Lord chooses not to count our sin. He's not counting our sins. We're actually being counted righteous because our covering is the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. I always like to point out where that finishes at verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's interesting. You get people say, oh, look, I'll just sin as I please, and then I'll ask for forgiveness. Really? This This verse here says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. God's no fool. God's no idiot. God knows wickedness for what it is. God knows evil for what it is. In whose spirit there is no deceit. People coming to God for forgiveness must come to God without deceit hidden themselves, openly, honestly, truly desiring to be reconciled to God. Let's turn now to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I realise we've studied it so many times, but it's just such a, it's a wonderful psalm. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, I mean, all psalms are wonderful, but let's just read it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Hold that open and I'm just going to read to you from the scriptures. At Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were parts of that. We were of that raging nation. We were of that plotting, conspiring people. We were following kings who set themselves in rebellion. We were following people who conspired against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, do I remember the stupidity of being a sinful teenager who wanted every kind of sin I could lay my hands on and wishing that there were no rules to hold me back. Well, do I remember wishing that I could honestly, freely do whatsoever I pleased with whomever I pleased whenever I desired it. We were of the raging nations. If God left us to our sins, we would immediately fall back into evil. We don't have the power within ourselves. We're not right, good people in and of ourselves. 
But let's read on in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what's God's answer? God says, I'm going to place a king at the head of the peoples and he will rule. His rule counts. He's the king. The king now speaks at verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So these raging nations, these plotting peoples, these conspiring kings, God says to his son, the king that he sets on Zion's holy hill, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them, smash them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As easily as we could take an unfinished work of pottery and just, we only got to open the window, lob it out the window, hits the concrete outside there, broken into a hundred different pieces. As easily as that, Jesus will take possession of the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So here's the warning to sinners, people like you and I, people who were part of that which was described in Ephesians chapter 2. Strangers from God at enmity with God, wicked, chasing after our own desires. The warning, kiss the sun. I think the idea here is that we're down on our knees. You know, we're, we're basically worshipping. We're at his feet. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Look at the last line. Blessed, happy, favoured by God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let's sort of dig this, let's sort of combine this together. There is a blessed man, that man is Jesus. He's he's happy, he's blessed because he's blessed in his own righteousness. He's the perfect man. Jesus, son of David, Jesus of Nazareth is the man that every other man should model his life upon. He's the one that fulfilled God's commandments. He's the one who did all things aright. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need our sins to be covered. We need our sins not to be counted against us. And we need the righteousness of that same King Jesus. The King whom God has set over the nations who can smash the nations in pieces like a potter's vessel, that same king can be our refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So where do we get our sins forgiven? Where do we get our sins covered? Where do we get the iniquity, the tally of our sins? You know, when it says God does not count his sins against him or God does not impute his sins against him, we're down in we're down in basically accountancy type 
language. Balancing the bills. You know, if, if, if there's a scorecard of sins, how long would it be? <laughs> you know, if there were a listing of our sins, how long would the scroll be? How, how many pages in the file? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who find their forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from this salvation that is in God, we're, we're lost, we're cursed, we're what we always were, we're like the world around about us, we're the chaff that the wind drives away. We cannot stand in the judgment, according to Psalm 1. We're aliens from God, lost in our own wickedness, hopeless and without hope. But God puts a king, a king to rule all the world upon Zion's holy hill. And God says, you can take refuge in him. And so coming back into the gospel of Luke at chapter six, as we study Luke chapter 6, as we study the, the Beatitudes, this is the background. What's involved in being saved by King Jesus? What's involved in coming to the place of blessing? Jesus is defining blessedness. Jesus is defining how it is that we can indeed kiss the Son and take refuge in him. We can indeed be the blessed man, blessed woman, whose sins are forgiven, whose, sin, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose, whose iniquity is not counted against us, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so Jesus speaks of being poor, for you have the kingdom of God, being hungry, for you will be satisfied, weeping, for you shall laugh. That's the background. That's what we're going to have to have in our, in our mind and that's what we're going to have to understand as we study these blessings that Jesus speaks of. He's basically speaking of the blessedness of being reconciled to himself. And it's not, it's, it is in a way childishly simple. It is in a way childishly simple. That childishly simple faith that comes to Jesus knowing that he is the son of God seeking the forgiveness of sins will start anyone on their Christian walk. But it's not humanly possible to do that childishly simple thing. We don't have it within us and we never did. Apart from God, we cannot do it and we will not do it. The one who sins is slave to his sins. How many, how many scriptures can you think of that tell you that apart from God, actually reaching in and getting involved in your life, you would be lost. We'd be lost if we were left to ourselves. We'd be lost. We would never bend the knee and kiss the sun. We would continue to be stupid plotters against the power of God, utterly resisting and refusing to accept the grace of God. But God, but God, I read Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just read it on a bit further from where I was reading. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So there's the condemnation, there's the description of how lost people are, apart from the involvement of God. And then the Apostle Paul says, but God, I mean, there's a famous sermon preached by Martin Lloyd-Jones, but God. And he talks about how beautiful that word but is in that context, coming after the condemnation. But, but there's, there's something that negates that situation. There's something that turns it around. There's something that makes that not necessarily so. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where was the, what, what, what was God's answer to the revolution of the world, to the plotting of the kings? He was going to set a king in a high place. He's going to set his king on Zion's holy hill with a rod of iron in his hand to rule over the nations. The recommendation was that we were to seek reconciliation in the king. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, my friends, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it's God who made us alive, though we were dead in sins. It's God who called us to life. It's God who's planted the seed of his word in our hearts. It's God who gets all the glory. So, just as I close, in coming weeks, we'll look at the blesseds. And this is the background. We've got to understand. Blessed. We need, to be in, we need to be in a condition of righteousness, a righteousness that stands in the sight of God. To be blessed, we need to be forgiven our sins. To be blessed, we need to find re- the Son of God set upon Zion's holy hill. And in that, in, those, in that place and in that way, we will be. Our Father in heaven, Once again, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and we thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might serve him, that we might be reconciled to him, that we might find our refuge in him, that we might be among the blessed. Blessed with forgiven sins. Blessed with covered sins. Blessed with our iniquity not counted toward us. Father, we thank you. And we praise you and we pray that we would rejoice in this knowledge. These things in Jesus' name. Amen.